What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the planet today. It is Friday, November 11th, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with our producer and co-host, Nick Janusa. Nick, how's it going on this Veterans Day? Yes, happy Veterans Day to everyone. I want to thank everyone who is uh, currently serving, formerly serving, whatever. Uh, Thank you for your service. We appreciate everything that you've done for us and that you're currently doing. Yeah, absolutely. Echo that sentiment. If you have off from work today, remember why. Um, I also have off from work today. So if there's any like editing mistakes we missed and you're listening at like 7 a.m., I usually listen before this. I'm going to sleep in today. So enjoy those errors. We will fix them later if there are any. Just kidding. There won't be. Nick's a rock star. Yeah, I don't miss. That's right. Nikki does not miss. And you know who we missed? Giselle Herrera, co-host. Who is back today on the pod? Giselle, welcome. Woo! Thank you so much for having me back, y'all. So happy to be here. Happy Veterans Day. Ditto to everything you all just said. I don't even need to repeat it. You all put it perfectly. (laughs) Well, no need to thank us. We're happy to have you here and uh, excited for today's show. Let's get right into it. Today, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. But before we get into today's show, quick programming note. COP27 began on November 6th. I'm sure a bunch of people are tuning in today, curious about our coverage, our takes. We are not going to include any of that this week because the conference is going to end a week from today on November 18th. So the plan is on next week's episode. We're going to cover it a little bit. Um... But we're going to wait until the fallout into the weekend. And that following Monday, we'll release a feature story episode where I'll dive into some more uh, more in-depth coverage of what Nick and I are going to talk about next Friday. Yes. All right. Time for our quick hits. And the first one is by Lila Uenis of Grist, who writes, Report, 90% of all U.S. coal plants are contaminating groundwater. The subtitle here is, and nearly half have no plans to clean up their mess, which is perhaps even more concerning than the 90% statistic that Nick just said. So across 43 states, nine out of every 10 coal power plants analyzed by Earth Justice and the Environmental Integrity Project are contaminating groundwater with coal ash. Coal ash is a byproduct of burning coal and failure to clean it violates a federal rule that's been in place since 2015. One of the goals of that rule was to stop the industry practice of dumping coal ash into unlined ponds, which was an issue because it would allow the coal ash to seep into groundwater. Unfortunately, this investigation found that most coal plants are not following the federal rule, which would require them to clean up contaminated sites and restore groundwater there. And from there, groundwater can be used for drinking, showering, watering gardens, you name it. Any time we're using water for the most part is is groundwater. So the rule required companies to send their waste to safer containment sites instead of creating this hazard for local communities. Abel Russ, a senior attorney at the Environmental Integrity Project, said that the contamination will continue to get worse if nothing is done to control the source. 
They're really just looking for coal plants to follow a federal rule that is already in place. So it's not like we're reinventing the wheel. It's not like we're asking people to go above and beyond. It's just, hey, there's a federal law that's telling you to do something. Maybe go ahead and follow that rule. (laughs) So 70% of decommissioning power plants with coal ash ponds are located in low income communities and communities of color. So this is another environmental justice issue within our current energy system. The article says to help mitigate the public health risks in these areas, the report authors developed a set of recommendations, including better federal oversight and enforceable cleanup schedules. Without these steps, they warn, these communities will have to endure the long-term effects of coal ash contamination. Yeah, I mean, we've seen things like this happening, affecting communities of color time and time again. And it's, you know, these short, simple steps can be used just to like, have we not learned from our mistakes essentially, right? Like it's, history is like doomed to repeat itself. So, um, and, and especially with contaminated groundwater, like we've, we've seen this before. Yeah. And I would argue that it's not even really a case of learning from our mistakes because this was done by design. Like Mm -hmm. you, you got to think that for a long time, urban planners were focusing on putting stuff like this in communities of color and low income communities. I'm thinking of New York city where, you know, you have some of the highways that are designed to go through traditionally lower income communities, communities of colors. There's no highways going through the West village. There's no highways going through the upper East side. Mm -hmm. And that goes the same with power plants and all of those things that are emitting a ton of smog. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I would love to say that we can learn from these mistakes, but it's a lot harder to change a system that's been strategically designed to offload the worst of these issues into the communities that are often the most underserved. Mm. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. A lot of unlearning has to happen, right. Of like understanding how these impacts just ripple and Mm -hmm. absolutely it's, it's horrifying. Yeah. And this one's tough because this is something that we already have the solution in place and people aren't following it. So it's, you know, we, we can say, go to the polls, vote on the back of the ballot measures. Those are all great. Right. But in this case, we need better enforcement. We need like, like they said, a federal oversight committee. We need enforceable cleanup schedules to make sure that this is being followed. And if not, you need somebody to stand up to the coal industry, to the oil industry and tell them, Hey, get your act together and clean this up because people's lives are being very negatively impacted in this case by coal ash, but by oil spills, by methane leaks. It's, it's an industry wide problem. And this is just one of those examples. Yeah. Or even by fracking, like we talked about that before as well. Mm-hmm. Like it's the same principle. It's the same situation. There's nothing that's changed about it. And it's still so shocking to me that there's 229 operational coal power plants in our country. Like, and some of them, I I was just on the Wikipedia before for it, the retirement for some, there's no listed date. Like for most of them, there is, Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, 2028, 2025, 2033, whatever, somewhere before then. But for some, it's just like, yeah, we have no plans to shut down. So pretty scary. Yeah. And you got to think with the IRA passing earlier this year, there's an avenue to start retiring more of those coal power plants that didn't already have plans to phase out. So yeah, who knows? Hopefully this time next year, we're looking at a different outlook 
I'm not going to say the, the entire energy industry in the United States is going to change within a year, but we might have that roadmap in place by then. So yes, yeah, mm-hmm. hopefully. Mm-hmm. Spokespeople for some of the coal plants have said that the report's methodology is flawed and that they are working to clean the groundwater. But my question is, is that enough? Like maybe the two spokespeople in this article are correct. They could also just be part of the one in 10 coal power plants that is doing enough already. This report analyzed 292 sites, so it seems pretty comprehensive to me. Yeah, agreed. All right, our next story is from David Reed and Justin Rolat at the BBC who write, Climate change. Can an enormous seaweed farm help curb it? So to combat climate change, there have been a lot of different groups, organizations, businesses that have been looking into really unique and like innovative ways to capture carbon, which so far have been pretty low scale and with limited success. But businessman John Auckland is looking to change this whole scheme with their business called Seafields. So by building a floating farm full of sargassum seaweed, say that three times fast, Auckland (laughs) hopes to draw enough uh, carbon dioxide from the air to make a dent in what we as a planet produce. So let me ask you, Matt and Nick, how many tons of carbon dioxide do you think we produce in a year? This is something I should know. I, <laughs> isn't it's it like- I'll say five billion. I got five billion, Bob. I think it's like a, <laughs> 197 million tons. Okay, so this is a unit of measure that I have yet to hear in my 28 years of life. We produce- One metric- We produce 50 gigatons a year. So to break that down, a gigaton is 50 billion tons, like something immeasurable in our minds. I was so far off. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So the goal is that sea fields will eventually remove one gigaton, so a fraction of that amount of carbon dioxide in a year, which is great. But what's wild is that this sargassum floating farm would have to be over 20,000 square miles just to take on that fraction of an amount of carbon dioxide. So absolutely massive. And right now they're testing the technology in the Caribbean and there have been some positives to the design and some flaws. One big positive is that sea fields will be using the power of naturally occurring gyres to help keep the sargassum farm together and growing. Gyres are these big and powerful rotating currents that I'm sure you guys have heard before. Am I right in saying that? I don't know if I have. I'm going to be honest. I don't think I've heard of gyres before. Yes, you have, Nikki. We talked about them with the great Pacific garbage patch, baby. You remember that one? I do. Yes. And Sally. (laughs) Yeah. The machine that was going out and collecting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. So um, if you're curious what a gyre is... (laughs) Maybe we didn't cover it well on that episode, but Giselle just gave you the insight that you need to understand a segment Nick and I covered quite a while ago. So uh, maybe a year ago. Thank you for fact checking us, Giselle. Oh yeah. <laughs> Not no uh, no like uh, gotcha journalism here. Just like truly, um, yeah. I mean, gyres um, they occur naturally, and the whole reason why the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is a thing is because of gyres just like accumulating all of this garbage to in, in like a central point in the middle of the ocean. So they're using these naturally occurring forces like to their benefit, which is great. 
Another positive to the design of sea fields is the use of something called a salt fountain. Uh, I don't think you guys have heard of this one. Maybe I'm wrong. No. But scientists <laughs> have worked out that if they use pipes to bring up the nutrient-rich water from deep down in the ocean to the top where the floating sargassum is, uh, the system will essentially like self-sustain itself. Um, the water will flow up continuously from like the depths, carrying all that nutrient-rich water, and the sargassum will keep growing. And fun fact, uh, sargassum in this like system will double their biomass every 10 days, which is wow. like pretty, pretty wild. Yeah. And um, especially in parts of the ocean that are nutrient poor, these like ocean deserts, they're called. Now, you might be asking, where does all this excess carbon go that's being taken from the atmosphere? So by using a combine harvester, folks at Seafields will bail up the crop and then send this like carbon package down to the seafloor. And because there's so little oxygen down there, the bales won't rot and will essentially be able to sequester this captured carbon for thousands of years, they've estimated. That is so cool. I know, like, it's like, how did they come up with this stuff? That's so (laughs) neat. Yeah. Yeah. So with all this in mind, Seafields plans to sell credits for captured carbon on the world's carbon markets when all said and done. Yeah, I'm I'm sure one of the businesses that'd be really interested in buying those carbon credits is something like the airline industry where, Mm -hmm. you know, we've talked about this when we covered electric vehicles. It's a lot harder to create an electric plane than it is to create an electric car. So for something like that, where they're relying on sustainable fuel sources to cut their emissions and not necessarily newer, more advanced technologies, it's going to be a lot easier for them to buy those carbon reductions that in this case, Seafields, but hopefully other companies as well are going to start contributing to. Yeah, and um, it's that's really one of the big, um, I think, negatives, like this idea of like the carbon market. And I mean, good in theory, right? That uh, businesses are are like trying to right their wrongs essentially, but- Yeah, but offsets are bull- Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what what's, it's- it is a solution, but is it the best solution, right? It's the, and, it's the oil industry emitting more and more every year, but then right. buying credits to be like, look how much carbon we're offsetting right. while we're producing way more <laughs> emissions than we've ever produced before. Yeah, it's yeah. like, look over here while we're like destroying everything over here. Yeah. Kind of. So yeah, that's, I'd say a negative, uh, the focus on the carbon market and like this big push to monetize carbon dioxide capture historically has led backers to like oversell these technologies and like really put a lot of emphasis on them that will eventually like fall short of their goals. So um, not ideal. And there's also the big question mark about whether this like technology of the salt fountain bringing up that nutrient dense water to the surface will work successfully on such a large scale. Then there's of course the possibility of parts from this whole design breaking off, adding to ocean debris along with potentially sargassum escaping and ending up on beaches, which a lot of um, ecotourism sites would not be a big fan of. But overall, scientists on this project ensure that the nutrient-poor water where this seafield design will be placed won't be able to sustain the sargassum. So as soon as they get out of this area by the salt fountain, they'll, they'll, they won't be able to survive. So 
overall, we'll really have to see whether this plan uh, and all the promises that are being held up or at least suggested in the lab actually work when released into the wild in 2026 in only a couple of years. Yeah, that'll be very, very interesting to see how this one all works out. You know, it's, it's cool to see innovation. It's cool to see creative people coming up with creative solutions. Um, I am just a little concerned about what we talked about with using this as just a way to buy up carbon credits and kind of pretend that certain companies are doing more than they actually are. Um, you know, it's reduction of emissions first and carbon capture is an important puzzle piece. It's not the silver bullet that some people like to think it is. So I think this is good. This is great even. I don't think this is the answer and I hope that bad faith actors don't adopt this technology and kind of make it like they're, this is what we're doing. We're going to save the planet too. Don't forget to buy our gasoline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you. I think this is great. Um, I think it's super creative and su- it's a really cool idea. Um, I think in theory, especially, hopefully it works in practice as well. And then also, mm-hmm. like we always say, climate change and fixing it is going to take a multifaceted approach. Like you said, this is not going to just solve it in a day. Mm-hmm. But right now, you're going to be a little upset for the next minute because we need to take a break. And after that, we will have a couple more quick hits for you. So stay tuned. The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, Uganda gives ivory dealer life imprisonment in landmark case published in Wild Aid. All right. Quick story here. Um, but this is the first time that a life sentence has ever been issued to an ivory dealer under Uganda's new wildlife laws. The Standards, Utilities, and Wildlife Court in Uganda sentenced Ochiba Pascal for unlawful possession of protected species last month after he was found to possess two pieces of elephant ivory weighing 9.55 kilograms without a wildlife use right. Ochiba was convicted by the same court in 2017 with two counts of unlawful possession of protected species. The Uganda Wildlife Act was passed in 2019, which significantly increased penalties for crimes surrounding wildlife. Gladys Kamasanyu, chief magistrate of the Standards, Utilities, and Wildlife Court, said, quote, 
Uganda is home to the world's most known wildlife, ranging from iconic mammals like elephants to small ones like pangolins that need to be protected. So this is awesome news because to me, you know, I always come out here and I sit on my soapbox and I say that we need to end poaching and we do, we 100% do, but I often focus on the poachers when in this case, we're focusing on the people who enable poaching and give poachers a platform to sell those illegal goods. So I think it makes a lot more sense to do it this way, because instead of penalizing poachers, you're focusing on the people who are encouraging poaching. You're focusing on the people that are paying the poachers and giving them a reason to poach Mm -hmm. instead of the people who are just desperately trying to make money for their family, which, you know, I don't think anyone goes into poaching because they're like, killing a lion looks fun. If, if you're the type of person to do that, like you should be in therapy, not, mm-hmm. not out in the wild trying to kill wild animals. But you know, in this case, you're stopping something at the source. Stopping poaching mm-hmm. is a major, major concern of mine. And I think addressing it at the source and taking away the incentive to poach is better than just trying to throw a poacher behind jail bars. Yeah. Agreed. When you take away the market, and they can't sell it anywhere and it becomes worthless, that's when we're going to see it stop. You know, like Mm -hmm. we've tried this penalizing poachers thing for a while and it hasn't worked clearly because people are still doing it. If you take away that, that market for it, then we'll maybe hopefully we'll actually see some results. This reminds me a lot of how we treat drugs in this country specifically. Um, But honestly, in many places around the world where drug users are typically punished for consuming something instead of treating the people or sorry, instead of punishing the people who are mass producing opioids, for example, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, like treat opioids like we're treating poachers in this case. Is it the user's fault or problem or is the person who is enabling it by peddling those drugs all around or, or, buying up right. ivory from whoever will sell them ivory. Yeah, great point. Yeah, I mean, and also talk like thinking back to that like multifaceted approach to a problem, right? Like there's there's additional solutions uh, that could like really get at the issue of poaching is bad, right? And I think one, of course, is education is huge. Mm-hmm. There have been a lot of um, like community-led efforts in a lot of these countries that have really like endemic wildlife as it relates to like, why do we feel the need to like take these, like uh, to take these tusks, you know, to take grind these bones. Um, a lot of it has to do with like medicinal purposes. A lot of it has to do with like spiritual mythological issue, like, or not issues like uh, traditions, but, um, traditions. Right. Um, so, Having people who understand it, uh, this like this uh, knowledge, this like somewhat institutional knowledge that are in these communities and finding alternatives uh, and educating folks on, you know, this is not the way to go about it. There are other solutions Mm -hmm. to this as opposed to like killing wildlife that are so, so endangered. All right. Let's move into our last quick hit of the week. And it is titled, Last Year's Deforestation Pledge is Off to a Slow Start by Jake Spring, Gloria Dickey, and Kate Lamb of Reuters. 
Last year at COP26, we praised the Global Deforestation Pledge, which aimed to stop all deforestation by 2030. It was signed on by more than 140 countries, but since then, not much has been done to finance forest protections or to pass new conservation laws. Brazil, Indonesia, and Congo all signed on, which is a huge deal with over half of the world's tropical rainforests existing in those three countries alone. For the world to meet this pledge, we need to average 10% less area deforested every year from 2021 to 2030. Last year, deforestation fell only 6.3%. Most countries that signed this pledge have not detailed plans for stronger forest protections, and global financing only amounted to 2.3 billion, while the assessment says 460 billion is needed to achieve this goal. This report uses data from the Global Forest Watch and analyzes financing, conservation laws, and sustainable food production. The hope is for COP27 to expand upon this pledge and encourage more investment from companies and countries that want to offset emissions by preserving and regrowing forests. So we want to just briefly cover the three countries that we mentioned earlier and say how they're doing with help from the global community. So Brazil first. Former President Bolsonaro's government pledged to end deforestation by 2028, which, if you know anything about Jair Bolsonaro, was shocking and also like not really enough. So <laughs> he actually saw deforestation rise by 23% this year, um, as opposed to ending it six years from now. And this was after hitting a 15-year high the year earlier. So it's 23% higher than an already astronomical number of deforestation. President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, otherwise known as Lula, returned to power. We covered it on our last episode. This is good news for the Amazon, but the world may need to continue to pressure Brazil to reach zero deforestation. Lula plans to boost resources to police deforestation that had been cut by Bolsonaro. And he's also attending COP27 to try to reestablish Brazil's leadership on deforestation and climate change. We love that. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, the deforestation rate over the past 20 years is at the highest in its history, with poverty and lovelessness cited as two of the main reasons. The second largest rainforest in the world is located in the Congo, and the country has struggled to stop people from clearing forests for firewood, subsistence farming, illegal logging, and industrial development. Congo's government promised to improve forest protections at COP26, but has been unable to do so as of today. Instead, Congo plans to open areas of pristine rainforest and carbon-rich peatlands to oil and gas drilling, a move that the international community heavily criticized. And finally, in Indonesia, deforestation dropped 1.3% from July 2021 to June 2022, thanks in part to better business pressures, improvement to law enforcement and forest management, and just general market trends. The government there stopped issuing permits for clearing primary forests and peatlands for plantations and for logging back in 2019, and the result has been deforestation slowly decreasing. Norway agreed in September to pay Indonesia to cut its carbon dioxide emissions by protecting forests and peatlands, which some could consider a bit of a cop-out for Norway. Yeah, it's, it's very similar to what we talked about before the break, where it's like, no, what Norway is doing is good, right? They are contributing to global deforestation being lowered, 
and global carbon emissions being lowered, Mm -hmm. but all they're really doing is paying somebody else to fix a problem that they also have. Right. Yeah. Indonesia, like kind of going back to what we were saying before, is working to become a carbon sink that absorbs more carbon dioxide than it emits. Yeah, so let's hope that COP27 expands upon this pledge with a major focus in financing forest protections and reforestation. That, to me, the fact that we only have a $2.3 billion investment pool when an assessment said we need $460 billion, that's a huge gap. And we have an opportunity this week into next week to get the global community to close that gap. Yeah, and a lot of momentum in in working towards that goal, like um, Lula being uh, back in power in Brazil, mm-hmm. um, a big positive with Indonesia uh, helping lower their deforestation rates within the, the past year. Um, but yeah, just keeping that momentum going. And I think a big one is have is that like huge, huge disparity and in, 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 like, um, investment and like money investment mm-hmm. towards the goal. That's, that's staggering. Yeah. I, I feel the need just because uh, election night was last night to, to just go back on that point that Bolsonaro said that he was going to pledge to end deforestation by 2028. And then it rose by 23% in 2022. It's like almost hysterical, but it's also not. Um, and it's just, it's just like a reminder that just because a politician says that they're going to do something does not mean that it will get done at all. Yeah. And part of that is because it's really tough to pass laws. You know, you can run on what you want to do, but when it comes to actually getting it done, you need, in our case, bipartisan support. In some countries, you need a coalition of multi-parties working together. Mm-hmm. It's tough to pass laws, but what is what's really important is to keep the pressure up well past election night and make sure your voice is heard so that after someone makes a campaign pledge, you hold them to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Accountability. What's the what's the phrase? Like democracy is like a garden. You have to continue to water it and grow it or something like that. I don't know. It sounds, if it sounds good sounds to right. you, that's the quote. <laughs> yeah. Here, here. Poetic, Matt. All right. And with that, we will close it out because I don't think we're going to top any terrible poetry anytime soon. <laughs> um, yeah, so on Monday, we're going to be back for our first of two interviews this month. Yes, so Matt spoke with Baru's Mamadov of Berkham about changing the plastics industry at the manufacturing level. Before we do the show's end credits, just want to give a huge, huge, huge shout out to a guest from December 10th, 2021 episode, Sophie Phillips, my friend from grad school who was just elected to represent the 18th House District for the state of Delaware. Congrats, Sophie. Can't wait to have you on the show as a politician next time. Until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Send us an email at planettodaypod at gmail.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. Nick Chanusa produces our show and makes all the music you hear throughout. Nick, where can people hear more from you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash Cape, And that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. Giselle Herrera co-hosted this episode and helped write it. Giselle, where can our listeners keep up with you? Yeah, um, if you want, look me up online or something, some avenue of, of social media <laughs> that I rarely use. But, uh, I mean, while you're on that internet and looking up this, uh, the latest 
episode. Definitely rate it five stars. And uh, yeah, happy to have been on and help write and co-host with y'all. Thanks so much. We love having you, even though your little sign-off plug there was it's the most terrible. boomer boomer take I've ever yeah, heard. Yeah, no, please, like, can <laughs> we do that over again? No way, we're keeping it in, baby. Oh, Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right oh, here boy. on Monday. Peace. Bye.